Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack Jake Patterson, who is the former world surfer on the tour. He talks about growing up in Western Australia and his friends and critics alike have described him as an overachiever. He also tells the story when he won the 98 Pipe Masters in Hawaii, beating Bruce Irons, and also talks about his sunscreen company, Now he has retired from surfing. He also talks about coaching the up-and-coming surfers to get them onto the professional tour. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Jake. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. Now, I watched him surf uh, most of my life and he's uh, had a magnificent career on the pro tour I think he was on the tour also with some of the uh, guys I grew up with at Bronte Beach. So it's a welcome, Jake Patterson, mate, into the Beach Shack. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Now, mate, uh, you did grow up in yelling up in WA. So tell us a bit about the early days, mate, of Jake growing up in those days. Well, I actually grew up in Perth in Cottes- a little suburb called Cottesloe, like in the beach, and didn't have much surf. So... In summer, I had to wait for the, the Fremantle doctor to blow up to about 40 knots to be able to surf two-foot wind chop in summer. But I was lucky enough for my family to have a, a holiday unit down in Yellingup. So that's where I kind of cut my teeth into the surfing world, I guess. Always to surf down here because it's down south is just a whole chalk and cheese compared to Perth for, for surf-wise. So we're very lucky to have the coast that we do down Margaret River area. So that's pretty much me growing up. Growing up down there must have been, you know, back in those days, there wouldn't have been as many people around either. So, you know, you would have got some, as you said, some great waves to learn on down Market River. Oh, definitely. Like, uh, yeah, the crowds these days is the same as every beach, though. You you know, it's, it's surfing's becoming a huge, um, you know, recreational sport. So, you know, crowds are growing, which is, you know, I recommend for everyone to surf. It's such a relaxing you know, forget all your problems kind of world you can get away from when you when you go for a surf. Um, and, uh, yeah, the crowds, are, sometimes you could get, it does not so relaxing when you've got someone dropping in on you and stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Mate, so, yeah, did you do other sports back then in those days? It was mainly your passion was surfing. Yeah, surfing, skating, fishing, kind of everything to do with kind of the surfing, you know, sporting world kind of thing and, you know, Taken up golf now, that takes up a lot of my time and effort. It's kind of taken over surfing altogether, golf has. Getting better at golf and worse at surfing, so it makes sense to me. <laughs> Mate, I know. Uh, I know. I'm, I'm in a bit of golf as well, so I like getting out in the golf course. And But every girl suffers, doesn't it? <laughs> it's so frustrating, that game. You've got to practice so much to get any better. Yeah, it is. That's well, that's what I love about it. The rules and regulations and it kind of the competitiveness of playing golf. It's kind of like an individual sport like surfing is as well. So it kind of gives me that 
that competitive thing because I'm super competitive in everything or, you know, not in surfing anymore, but, you know, it used to be like with table tennis or anything that used to play any kind of speak to my wife and my kids and stuff. They say I'm a, the, the worst loser in <laughs> the whole family kind of thing. So, you know, if you're not first, you're last kind of mentality kind of thing with everything we do. So, mate, you're saying you're competitive. When did that start with the surfing? When did you realise, okay, I'm, I'm – yeah, good enough here to, to you must have started winning some local club comps. I was super competitive playing AFL footy growing up in, in Perth um, and then surfing kind of like, you know, it's one of those sports that kind of grabs you by the balls and kind of like drags you along and you, you can't let go of it kind of thing. So it kind of like took over everything else, like all my, my fishing, my, my surf life-saving, all that stuff um, that I used to do as like a full little grommet got taken over by surfing and it kind of like you lived and breathed it and you couldn't wait to get, you know, the next session and, you know, new boards and new equipment kind of thing. So I, I started doing competitions in, I got the Cottesloe board riders back when I was about 11 or 12. And then I started doing the state rounds in, in Western Australia and, and just my competitive nature and having two brothers at mind you made me extra competitive to, to, to grind away and become better and better, you know, just having brothers alone, like, is just uh, enough to, you know, want to make make you a better surfer and more competitive. Well, mate, in those days, who'd you look up to? Who was the big name coming through when you were you're a grommet? Uh, Stuart Schubert Brown. I think he lives in Sydney these days, but he used to be a Cottesloe boy. And just when he paddled out, it was like a different aura of the guy that paddled out, you know, um, so he was like my my guy that I wanted to be like kind of thing and yeah so it's a it's an old you know and then we had guys like uh, the other entrenched professionals like Dave McCauley, Mitch Thorson, uh, Matt Branson, you know all those guys from from Trig, Wayne Jagger, Ben Moran. There's a whole bunch of guys from WA that I grew up with, Richard Kelly, um, that really you know, I was pretty lucky enough because my older brother Ant Man he. Um, he was all friends with the older guys and we got to do surf trips with all these guys that, you know, took us under their wings and, and really kind of like uh, laid a, a stepping stone for us because we got to go to these trips with these great surfers in our mind and that really improved our surfing, both of us, I think. So, mate, then did you try out like on the qualifying tour to get to the pro tour? What was the process there? Uh, it's, it's a pretty gnarly world to qualify these days and I always – because I went on to coaching after after my professional tour and stuff, and I was always tell the kids that the the percentage that of pro surfers that make it is kind of like golf or tennis or something. The the percentage is tiny, and there's so many guys trying to do it. So yeah, it was just a process of of going around. Um, you know, have to have to be one of the best in Australia as a junior. I came through as one of the best uh, junior guys that came through, and then you know you jump on this this qualifying tour to try and make it. You know, ten guys qualify every year to get onto the big tour kind of thing. And then half those guys are already the guys on the, on the big tour as well. So it's kind of like a, bo- a bottleneck system that really favors the guys already on tour. So you have to have a pretty outstanding year to qualify. So yeah, I, I was lucky enough to qualify, you know, one of my first years of doing it um, with a couple of good friends and we, we grabbed the bull and ran with it kind of thing. So had a great career. Well, mate, tell us about, you did uh, start on the uh, tour and, around 1996 so what was that like what's that feeling of you know I've, I've made it onto this tour which would have been probably a, a childhood dream oh unbelievable it's like i i've 
worked my whole life to become like a pro surfer and such. And you don't feel like you're a pro surfer unless you're kind of on tour. That's my recollection of, of making it. And it was like, it wasn't even a, I couldn't believe I'd done it kind of thing. So the next year, the first event, I was there just going, holy moly, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a rash vest. I'm going to paddle out <laughs> at Snapper Rock to, you know, surf against guys like, you know, back when I qualified, was Barton Lynch, Damon Hardman, still on tour, Gary Ockerton. So, you know, the field was, and Kelly was obviously still on tour. Um, still is on tour. <laughs> so uh, it was just, it was, I had to work really hard because I didn't, in my head, I didn't have the ability to be like, you know, a Taj Burrow or something like had natural ability and always was earmarked to be like, you know, one of the world's best, you know. So I had to work really, really hard and, and be super smart and, you know, strategic to make that spot on tour. So, you know, I trained really hard and, and you know, pride myself on making minimal mistakes, which, you know, evolved in my coaching career kind of thing because I was coaching these kids with all this ability in the world and, um, you know, tunneled, tunneled them into... To, to qualifying off the QS the easy way instead of having to, you know, grind it out and, and just rely on their own, you know, talent kind of thing. So with my knowledge and their talent, it was kind of like easy. Guys like, you know, Kanoa Igarashi, Griffin Colapinto and um, Zeke Lau and Ethan Ewing. I've coached all these guys that unbelievable talent, but kind of like not really the the mindset or the the mistakes that they made. I, I gave them 10 years of mistakes in, you know, a couple of months. So pretty proud of how those kids are doing these days. Well, you did mention some names then when you're on the, the tour. And I think that era, you, you would have come through with some of the greatest, probably potentially the greatest surfers of all time in that era. So what was that like surfing against those guys? Uh, it was, it's way different these days because I, I felt like those guys hardly even spoke to the new guys on tour. Like Damon Harbin and Barn Lynch and those guys were just like, they're a whole, it's like a whole different level and arrogancy that they had was like, yeah, yeah you're just a grommet kid kind of thing. I'm not going to share anything with you. I'm not going to give you any hint. And they were so brutal in the water. Like, um, you know, they wouldn't give you an inch. So, it was uh, definitely an eye-opener. Like, it was different to those guys compared to the younger, you know, the, the Shane Dorians and the Ross Williams that were still my kind of generation going when we qualified kind of thing. So those older, older guys were just so arrogant and didn't give you an inch. And those, the newer wave of guys that I qualified with were kind of like, you know, all hung out together and kind of like were more friendship and everyone was kind of friends. And still it was super competitive, but there wasn't that like, oh, you guys, at arm's length, we don't even want you sitting with us at dinner or anything like that. So it was a, it was definitely an eye opener when I qualified. <laughs> and mate, uh, you had some success as well on the tour. And what was it like surfing? I think that it was it was ninety eight, the Pipeline Masters, and you were surfing against Bruce Irons, was it? Yep, Bruce Irons in the final. Yeah, I had Kelly. I beat Kelly in the semi final. Um, and yeah, had Bruce Irons as a wild card for the tour event. Um, you know, just. Obviously, everyone knows who Bruce is. He's the, um, Andy Irons' younger brother. And both those guys are like the best barrel riders in the world. So, you know, I had my, my everything stacked up against me to, to win that event. But uh, just, it's just one of those things. When you're, on for, when you're in form, you have a little role going and things you're now they're enjoying. And yet you're hardly even competing. It's kind of like you're in the moment and things are happening for a reason. And, and it was just one of those days that just everything just, clicked into place and uh, had an incredible day. Like 10 seconds basically changed my life. 
And what's it like surfing pipeline though? It's in a competition that, you know, it's, as you said before, you, you can't make mistakes. In, in that level, you make one mistake and you probably get knocked out of the, the tournament. Oh, definitely. Pipe is such a hard place to free surf as well because every time it's good, um, when, they, when they run the contest, it is like 30 to 40 to 50 guys out. So it's not like you're out there in a heat situation. You can't really practice what you do in heats out at pipe. So the intensity when the free surfing sessions go on is just crazy. So I, I always practice and use my boards in other breaks around the North Shore, which is a kind of couple of similar different ways that you can kind of test your equipment because when you're out there at pipe, like there's you know, it's kind of like a small takeoff zone and, and no one else out there besides one other guy. So it's the best feeling in the world knowing that when a, uh, a great set comes, you've got priority. You, you can take that wave, which is so rare in a free surf because you're never getting a wave you want. All the local guys dominate out there. And um, so, yeah, to compete out, you know, that was my motivation to keep on surfing out at pumping pipeline when I won. It was like, I just want to go and surf again with like <laughs> no one out for 30 minutes. Yeah. So it was a prop out for sure. Would you say that was your best result, your best competition, your best days? You said that it felt like you were just right in that moment. Yeah, definitely one of them. It, it all happened so quick. And then before I knew it, like, you know, it was court, It was round before quarters, quarters, semi-final all in one day. So it was like bang, 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 bang. And then before I know it, I'm, you know, paddling out for the final against Bruce Irons. And it was like, wow, it's like unbelievable happening in a, in a day. But a couple of other, my wins, are, I, I uh, like, I won J-Bay twice and, J-Bay is like a full game of chess. You can't make any mistakes at all because it's like a long paddle back out. It's like, a, you know, they don't, have, they don't use jet skis there um, when I was competing. Um, and, you know, you only get a certain amount of chances. So one mistake there will cost you, you know, to win it two years in a row. I was pretty proud of the way how I negotiated. Showing my first year just wasn't a fluke. I, I kind of backed it up the year after. And I had great results, quarterfinals, semifinals like in Joe Bay as well. So it was one of those waves that really suited me and gave me more confidence every time I went there to compete and do well. So confidence is a huge one at all these spots. Like um, coming from Southwest to Western Australia, like a lot of the places that are, you know, reef breaks or places you get to use bigger boards and stuff, I felt way more confident about than places like Snapper or places like that. So yeah, it's a confidence is a, it plays a lot in, in professional surfing. Well, you would have been on the tour with... Um... Tom Whitaker, uh, Luke Hitchings from Bronny, they were probably around your era that uh, they're a bit younger than me, but I watched them come through as grommets and, and then onto the pro tour. And you know, I grew up with Kerbox, which was probably, he retired, he was probably off the tour before before you came up. You probably uh, that know about Kerbox. So, you know, Bronny had produced a lot of good uh, surfers over the years. And Jesse from Jesse, there as well, isn't Jesse? Jesse Millie yeah. guys from there. Um, there's been a couple, and a couple of girls. Um, have come through Bronny as well. So I don't know what it is. Yeah. Bronny's, I mean, I grew up at Bronny and you get the days where, yeah, you get a, a, an all right wave, but geez, it's far between getting a, a, a good, I don't know if you ever surfed Bronny, but it's it's not the greatest wave in the world. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy and Hitcho are two of my best mates. So yeah, I grew up there and traveled with them on tour for years and years and years. We've had a, had a great time. And I think the competitive nature of, of the Bronte beach with the Bondi and the whole yeah. scene of that whole thing is why those guys were so successful kind of thing. And, you know, Tommy and his family are, are you know, are a family of freaks kind of thing. You know, his brother's playing for the yeah, yeah. Australia and rugby union and, and his other brother's a really good competitor. You yeah. know, Tommy's good at, at golf, tennis. Yeah. He's one of those guys that really pisses you off because he's good <laughs> at everything. So 
Yeah, and and then Hicho is just a, a freak. We we call him the purist because he went out there and gave 110 percent on every single wave from one foot to, to 20 foot. He was out there just going all health leather, which you know improved my my surfing as well. Just hanging out with him on you know not holding back and and pushing my limits to to compete better at a higher level. And and um, yeah, as I said, two of my best mates. So. I love Bronte though. Yeah, the waves, the waves suck. Waves, the waves are shit, mate. Yeah, terrible. I, go, I used to hang out at Bronte Reef, think it was the best right-hander in the world. But yeah, uh, <laughs> once you move out of Bronte, you get away from Bronte, you get on a couple of the beaches, you realise it's not that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, mate, uh, so you had a, a great career, but I noticed too that friends and critics described you as an overachiever. Now you've just ex- said what you had achieved. Now. Looking back in hindsight, did you is was it the passion that got you there? Oh, definitely. Determination and passion um, is you know, and hard work is is what I really bring forward in my coaching as well because that's what how I made it. And these kids that I coach have got ten times more talent than I have. I'm the first one to say I'm an overachiever for sure, and that's what I I tell these kids. I go, I've won, I won four world tour events, kind of thing. I've finished fifth in the world twice and and with my ability like I, I'm not the greatest surfer in the world at all like I just you know kept all the guys really honest when I competed against them kind of thing you know all the top guys if they made any mistakes I'd make them pay kind of thing so with the with the guys that I coached with their talent I was going if you guys have you know my mentality and your ability you guys there's nothing can stop you you can win world titles easily so hard work I truly believe pays off even though surfing you have to rely on mother nature which is a huge element that we have to deal with but I believe luck is a cop out when they say oh the other guy got lucky or or whatever because you're out in the water at the same time so how does he become lucky and you didn't or whatever so I believe hard work and being in the right place and believing in yourself and your ability and and not making mistakes is is the way I mean Kelly. I mean he was not lucky. He won eleven world titles. It's just his ability and his mindset and his competitiveness to not want to lose. So, can you believe Kelly saw the tour? Knowing after uh, after you've done you've done the tour, you know what it's like the travel as well and 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 what it takes. Can you believe he's still going? I, I honestly can't. It's like what has he got more to prove? Kind of thing. I mean. I just played. I just came back from Hawaii. Uh, went and watched the, the pipe this year. Um, watched the finals. Watched Jack and and Leo's final, which was great. But for Kelly to be there, so competitive still. He's there because he really wants to compete for one last uh, Olympics. I think he wants to have a crack at the Olympics. And, and I tell you what, if he gets into that Olympics and the and the, uh, the events at Chopu in, in Tahiti for the France Olympics. He's a, he's a huge threat to, to walk away of a gold medal. So that'll be so interesting if he... There's, I think there's one wild card spot <clears throat> to get into the Olympics. And he's got to finish top 10 in the world <clears throat> to get automatically into the Olympics. So um, I'm interested to see what happens this year to see if he can get a spot. Mate, uh, also we touched on how tough it is on the tour. Was there, there must have been a, a few tough times there and times where you go, geez, I don't know if I can keep going or make it or, or you know, that, that period must have been quite tough. Uh, definitely. Like every year it seems like there's a new wave of kids coming to try and take your spot. It's, it's pretty, um, pretty intense. It's every professional sport though. You, you rely on results and, and fitness and health because one injury can kind of ruin your whole career. 
So yeah, every year I was going, oh, this is the this is the hardest year ever, and then the next year come along and go, oh no, this year's harder than the, than the last. And you know, there's no easy years. The kids are only getting better, and now with the wave pools and stuff coming out, like you guys got got 10, 11, 12 year old guys doing full air reverses from wave pools. You know, they can just surf a wave pool for an hour and learn how to do a maneuver. It's not like the good old days where you had to go find a way, find a section to do the air reverse, and then try and lock it down on you know on repeat kind of thing. A guy can come in an hour and get 20 sections of the same aerial until he can master it. So it's it's changing the way professional surfing is, I believe, incredibly for the younger kids coming through. And you touched on the coaching before. You moved into coaching. And how was, was that going from competing as a surfer and then taking that knowledge to the kids? Because as you said, and I find that, down the beach now. A lot of kids have got obviously so much talent come through, but they just haven't got it in the, in the mindset and just they fade away. You never see them again. Yeah, well, so that's part of my whole whole gig with coaching was just like, as I said, always seeing these kids with all the ability and then not having that mindset to be able to compete because competing on the world tour and competing on the QS is completely different as well. You don't need to you can't win the event the first round of the QS kind of thing. You can definitely lose it. You know what I mean? So I just work on averages, just going, you know, work on your safe surfing. All you've got to do is survive, survive, survive kind of thing. And then, you know, use your talent when you need it kind of thing. You know, get yourself, paint yourself out of a, everyone, surf, competitive surfing is like you always paint yourself into a corner sooner or later because because of the mother nature kind of thing. And then, with the guys that I was coaching there, they can paint themselves out of doing a huge big air reverse on, on a on a closeout wave. So, you know, I, I tried to make it so they didn't have to do that um, high risk maneuver to, to qualify kind of thing. I did it, try and make it do it the easy way of like waiting for a best wave, don't fall, you know, and then pushing the boundaries when you make the tour, when you're competing against, you know, the likes of Philippe Toledo and Gabriel Medina and stuff, these guys are pushing the limits of professional surfing. and safe surfing just doesn't cut it. They're going 110% and they're making it look easy because they're that good. So, yeah. Do you find too this these days that the, the surfers, they're training a lot more, nutrition comes into it, everyone's got coaches. I mean, back in your day, that probably wasn't around as much. Well, Art Kerboff, like yeah. <laughs> rooms, and him and Hoyo and stuff like, you know, yeah, yeah. it's like a 12-pack the night before going out to all hours and then yeah. waking up and just going, oh, yeah. Take, took the edge off last night and walk, rocking up and, you know, these days it's like everyone, all the top guys have their team. It's like a nutritionist, most of them, um, a fitness coach, you know, the board, you know, the board designs that they're, they're pushing the levels of, of where they can put their surfboards and, and everything like that. So it, it has changed completely since back in my day where, you know, uh, I, I, I started coaching with Dave McCauley and stuff because he was, he prided himself on, you know, I don't think he was the, the, the most talented guy when he was winning events back on tour, but he was the fittest. And that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the fittest guy. And um, don't leave any stone unturned that I can control when I'm surfing a heat kind of thing with, with my equipment, my fitness, and my mind strength is what, what my strengths were. My ability was kind of like, <clears throat> you know, I had ability, but I definitely wasn't, you know, up with the Kelly Slayers and the, <laughs> you know, the Martin Potters and those guys. So um, I had to survive a different way. Yeah, well, mate, I'll tell you what, with Kerbox, stuff has changed. He used to drink a beer and a meat pie back then, and he still does the same today. <laughs> I uh, love Kerbox. Yeah. Oh, great bloke, great bloke. Now, how was it at the end of your career? A lot of professional athletes struggle, you know, to retire. 
So yeah, was that the reason was, why you went into the coaching to, to stay in touch with it? <clears throat> um, definitely. Um, retiring from such a sport is really tough. I mean, it's a surfing's like a, a you know a, a recreational sport kind of thing. So the competitive nature of it all is is pretty gnarly. I found it really hard to go paddle out for a, for a free surf and try and enjoy it without working on something that I used to work on to compete. So it was like a mindset in your brain that had to, you've got to kind of switch off. Otherwise you, you kind of like, you know, I'm counting my turns to the beach on my, on a, on a surfboard when I'm going, what am I doing? I'm, you know, and that's where, where I switched into like more fun equipment kind of thing, you know, riding twin fins and trying single fins and, so I'm not trying to grind out that competitive free surf that I used to do for like, you know, 20 years to try and get rid of that mindset and try and ride, I call them smile boards because, you know, you're riding a board that, you, you know, that puts a smile on your face because you're cruising and you're enjoying yourself like you're supposed to do with surfing and trying to get that competitive mindset out of my head, which is really tough to do. So it was tough. But then, you know, when I started coaching, it's, it's just as rewarding when they win, you know, if you're their coach kind of thing. If you've helped them 1%, to get a, a heat win or an event win, it's like you've won. I felt like I've won as well. So yeah. it was really, really rewarding. And I suppose that's a, a good thing about it. I can see the passion coming out, you know, like you wanted a six. Yeah, I, I'd imagine like a Kelly Slater or someone, doesn't matter. People think if you're a great surfer, you're going to make a great coach. But that's not the case though, is it? Uh, no, I don't think so at all because uh, Kelly probably would, but, you know what I mean? He, he, he views things completely different to everyone else. You know, his ability can look at a wave and, and they dissect it differently kind of thing. So my ability, I'm looking for a certain wave for my, my ability to get the score that I need to, to compete, if you know what I mean. So Kelly can look at a different wave that I'd let go. And he goes, he, he'll see eight points written on that wave and I'll look at it and go, oh, I, I see four points. So ability plays a big part of, of coaching kind of thing. And, and I coach all the guys I coach and girls differently to every, you know, you can't coach the same way for everyone because everyone's ability is different. So you got to coach for the strengths of the people you're coaching, and yeah, it's 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 hard. Right, Jake. What what was your favourite break uh, on tour? The one you loved going to every year? I I have to say going to Hawaii was always my favourite, or, or or Jeffrey's Bay. Two incredible special spots. Um, Jeffrey's Bay is like. South Africa and, uh, you know, I've been traveling there for so long and, you know, the whole part I think, you know, I was going back there in the, you know, early 90s and stuff. It was the, the racism and stuff was so crazy to watch and see, you know, people standing on the streets with uh, machine guns, you know, guarding bank, you know, doors and stuff. It's like the whole eye opener of, of a different world that, you know, we're so lucky to live in in Australia. But then going to the small sleepy town of Jeffrey's Bay is, is was incredible and the, the weight itself was so special and um, special to me and the people that looked after us, Sharon there, the, the, the lady that owned the Billabong brand always put on the best. We felt so welcome and every time we went, so it was just a really special place for me to go and, and obviously my success that I've had there over the years. And that's what makes um, Hawaii special as well is just the waves and the, the vibe. Of, it's, it's so intense when you're in, in Hawaii, like every free surf, everything, you know, the locals are so intense and to get a bomb wave or to get a huge big barrel or something like that is, you know, you hear about it and there's a, there's a competitiveness inside the competitiveness of a, of a competition. So it's, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then what, what about the toughest? It'd have to be one, a break that was just, you found the toughest. 
Yeah, I'd say Chofu, like in Tahiti, it was, was probably my hardest break to really get used to. I, I'm sure you've all seen footage of these guys throwing themselves in these crazy left-hand barrels. And I've never been a very good backhand barrel rider, but, you know, I've thrown myself into in almost anything and being super competitive is, you know, I'll throw myself into it. But, you know, you, you've got to take yourself so out of your comfort zone to surf that wave really well because, you know, yeah, instinct is to paddle to the shoulder to, to make the wave, but you have to paddle the other way to get a big score. So it's like a really tough one. But I reckon that was my, my toughest one to, to compete at. And the other thing too, a lot of people ask me, like being a lifeguard, do you get scared in the ocean? Because we've got to put ourselves in positions that to rescue people that, that you know, most of the time you wouldn't put yourself in. Is there a, a, a fear factor as well? Everyone needs to respect the ocean. But there's got to be a time that yeah, everyone is a bit, oh, Jesus, a bit uncomfortable here. Oh, definitely. There's a huge fear factor. Like, uh, it's taking yourself, especially competition, because you take yourself out of your comfort zone and you normally maybe take a wave that you would never go in a free surf because you're scared shitless. But I, I did that every year I went to Tahiti. It was like one of those things of taking yourself out of your comfort zone and, and pushing the boundary of, of, you know, the safety and competition side of it all. And, you know, I always figured that it was always going to hurt more to lose than it was, you know, a, a physical nature to, to get hurt. So I always throw myself over the edge to try and to win a heat or to to, to, to progress in a comp- competition. So, you know, the, the fear of losing always overtook my fear of uh, getting hurt. So it's a lot of people, you know, they, they push themselves to, to, to doing stuff that they wouldn't probably do unless they had a rash vest on to, to compete. So I was always that guy just, you know, it's on, you know. It's the hooter blows. I'm going. <laughs> well, can you believe that the waves they're riding over in Portugal, like Nazareth? That's it's just Nazare. bizarre, isn't it? How, oh, how big it is? They're crazy. There's some guys that are just honestly just a whole another level. Even the guys that surf, they paddle jaws. You know, they're they're paddling into the windiest thirty foot wave you've ever seen, and they're just like just head down, can't see what they're doing, and they're just going you know, airdropping on twelve foot boards and stuff. Just going, what the hell? crazy stuff it's like it's gone to a whole nother level you know the, the towing of the big waves is like taking a full back step because now it's all about you know who can paddle the biggest wave which is just you know nazare is a it's a shifting wave you know it's like a beach break that you know big waves to, so to paddle that wave is just almost impossible and so those guys to tackle it like it's just incredible Oh, it is fun. It's, it's incredible. Great, great to be a spectator and watching that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the cliff of Nazareth, it's pretty special. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Mate, uh, also, tell us a bit about the, the Snake Tales videos that you've been doing over the years. Um, yeah, well, that was just a, a thing. I mean, I grew up in the, you know, the, the late, not in the surfing and, and a Sergeant Scrapbook, I'm not sure, you probably remember. Hopper yeah, I remember Sergeant that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, like I was just going, those things are incredible. I want to know what the pros are doing and, and the behind the scenes kind of of the thing. I don't want to see the glossy, you know, surf video stuff. I want to see the the, the grits and the grind of, of what's behind the scenes and, and some com- competitiveness of, you know, a little bit. And so I kind of like rolled off the back of that. The, the, it was only on the QS that I was doing the, the snake tails videos and to try and get, you know, try and get the character across to the, the general public of the guys I was coaching because, you know, Randy Booker, he just made tour this year. I coached with him for a few years. Like he's a quiet guy from Morocco, but he is the funniest human in the world. And, and I try and, you know, 
portrayed that across in those videos of how funny this guy actually is and his witty humor and, and how good he surfed, you know, because the results that they, that we show on the, in the QS doesn't really represent how good these kids are. So I was trying to like build their profile up basically and trying to give these kids, you know, I had a full cult following kind of thing. Like kids are just always going, when's the next one coming? You know, it was pretty sick. Like I, I really enjoyed doing it and learned how to edit and did all that stuff off my own back. And, you know, Sid Loud gave me the 101 of uh, editing surfing movies in like, you know, 24 hours and ended up putting them all together myself and, you know, picking the old, the old school surf track that I used to love growing up. And, you know, so yeah, it was pretty fun doing, but, you know, try to give the raw emotion of the winning and losing, you know, there's one winner a week, every week in the surf contest, but, you know, so that means there's, you know, a hundred losers and having to deal with that and the frustration and trying to show kids, you know, there's a human side to all this. It's not just this glamour of pro surfing, you know, the QS is a, a full grind on having to compete from one foot to 10 foot waves any given day, um, having to grind around the tour and, you know, it's pretty, pretty, I try to I try to give a QS perspective of, you know, how hard it was on tour. So, I don't know. Because it's not easy, is it? I mean, plenty of airports, plenty of time sitting around, traveling. People don't see that. We only see the, the good side of it when they're in the water surfing, competing. But there's a lot goes behind the scenes. Yeah, the behind the scenes and like the, you know, high cars, the accommodation, having to book it all yourself kind of thing. And so I try to make my little team feel as, more, most, as much comfortable like their home you know extras that you could you could bring on tour kind of thing so they felt like you know it was all taken care of all they had to worry about is you know competing and not having to worry about accommodation high cars and all that stuff so part of the one percenters that we used to work on when i coached with guys you know yeah mate uh the listeners they're all around the world and and they've always laugh at australians because we've all got nicknames so <laughs> they call you the snake now how, how did that come about well, my older brother's called Ant Man, and my little brother was called Flea Man because uh, my older brother was like so small, and, and my younger brother's obviously smaller. And it was Jake the Snake, and yeah, all the cop board writers kind of like gave us the, like you know all our nicknames, and it kind of just stuck. And then I just ran with it basically because you know like the the Tom Carroll swish on his board, you know, is so recognisable. So I went Jake the Snake, run with snakes on all my boards, and you know, it gave me a little bit of an image to try and you know milk, you know. You know, there was no Instagram back in my day when I was on tour, but, you know, it kind of like, it would have been one of those things. So, yeah. Now, mate, you're not coaching anymore. You've, you've retired from coaching. Yeah, COVID killed my coaching career, unfortunately. It was a, it's a, it's unfortunately because it's like super rewarding. I love doing it. And, uh, um, you know, going back to Hawaii just recently really made me miss it even more because, you know, I was with Tommy over in Hawaii playing golf and he's coaching the kids I used to coach. And yeah, so now I'm running a sunscreen brand called We Are Feel Good Inc. I'm part owner of that with a couple of other families and I'm doing really, really well. And um, yeah, so it's a, it's a different world, that's for sure. I have an office job, I sit behind and I manage like 10 staff and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a different world to, to coaching, that's for sure. Well, tell us about the company. Uh, it's something that's come along, and, and as you said, it's a bit different than what you used to, and it's just to do with sunscreen. And, and you had a, a cancer as well in, in your head at some stage. So tell us about that and why you went into this area. I mean, I've been bald since I've been about 25, 26 <laughs> or something, so I had a shaved head 
from early days. So would have seen it. a bit of extra sun to most scalps. But yeah, I had some um, skin cancers cut out of the top of my head. And yeah, well, I was just on holidays up north in Nal- uh, at Nalu with a couple of other families. We're all whinging about our sunscreens because, you know, we're all day in the desert, like um, all day in the water, all day oceaning and just didn't, didn't really have a product that we're happy with. Kind of, we're all whinging about it. And we went, oh, we should get back and maybe do something about it. And it was one of those feel-good stories. And, and actually, we actually did. We actually got back. And um, one of the part owners is a skin physician. And, and he knew a little bit about the basics of, um, of skin care and, you know, what's good, you know, the chemicals that go into sunscreen and, and so on. So we all had a bucket list of, you know, for, for my bucket list was, you know, it's got to rub in, not leave you looking white and, it can't run into your eyes when you're surfing and it's got to you know, last four hours in the water. And, and we, yeah, we came up with these products and you know, the rest is history kind of thing. You know, it's been, it's, this is our eighth year kind of thing. And it's a really, really tough market. You know, you we've got one of your guys from Bondi, you have got Bondi zinc, don't you guys? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, he'll tell you how hard it is market to succeed in with FDAs and the, the rules and regulations. And it's, it's really, really, it's not just like, oh, let's just start a brand. It's the rules and regulations to, to, to get it out onto the market. It's just so hard and for, for good reason, because you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a medical product, basically, you know, people are relying on to protect them skin, you know, and you can't over promise and under deliver on a, on a product that, you know, people are going out and using. So, yeah, I'm pretty proud of, of the product that we got out in the market. And, you know, we got some, all the, the pro surfer girls love our zinc because it, it makes you look like you're not wearing zinc. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy where we are. Doing really well. And how, what advice have you got for young people coming out, you know, coming through? They're going to be out in the sun, they're out surfing. You've been through it all in an era that uh, probably wasn't as prominent as it is now to look after your skin. Oh, it's definitely got to cover up. The ozone layer is not as what it used to be either. And uh, it, it, different countries have different um, sun factors, I feel, because, you know, in California, you can kind of go way longer without sunscreen, but you come to WA and you have like half an hour in the sun, you don't have sunscreen on or protected from the sun, you are getting cooked. And, you know, half an hour in, in California, I feel like the sun's not as harsh as what it is in Western Australia or, or in Australia in general kind of thing. So our climate really... Um, you know, the 50 plus. So my, my advice is to just cover up basically. And if you have exposed skin, make sure you've got protection on it because, you know, it only takes one, you know, melanoma or something to, to get into your skin and you're in trouble. So you see all the old, old the oldies these days, like have a look, have a look at the old, you know, the Gary Elkertons and look at their skin quality these days. It's like so gnarly how, you know, you used to surf with your shirt off and, whole season in Hawaii, you know, no trouble. But now these days, it's, you know, it, it, it's a full factor. I mean, the whole um, keeping young is all to do with, you know, protecting yourself from the, from the sun. It's the only um, anti-aging thing you can do is for your skin is, is sunscreen. And also in that is the, I noticed you've got a recycling program as well with bottles in there, plastic bottles. Is that a part of the, the sunscreen company as well? Oh, yeah, it is. It's like, well, we have to use a virgin plastic to, to, to make our bottle. So we we really wanted to so sustainability kind of thing. And obviously, being a professional surfer, I care about what, you know, the ocean and recycled products. And um, so, you know, we, we make hair combs, girls' beach combs for, for girls to, you know, and uh, precious plastics in Margaret River, supporting them, you know, giving all 
all our bottles to recycle and making other cool products. You know, it's not just hair cones. It's, you know, we make pot plants, little plastic things. And there's a whole bunch of things that I make from the plastic that we, we uh, clean and, and recycle down there. So it's just part of the process of our company, you know, ethics is like, you know, it's, we want to make sure that people think that we're doing the right thing about using plastic in our packaging that we actually, we retake it back and clean it and get it recycled. So it's part of the company process. And where can people get the product? Is it in you know, most stores around Australia? or? Yeah, I've, our websites are really good. We have a, our own website and we have a stockist list at the bottom of our lot website. We, you know, we have about 2,000 stockists around Australia that you know you can find it pretty much everywhere. Most towns have a, a feel-good stockist. So you can go online, you can buy it from us direct or you can find a stockist close to you. There, how's that plug? <laughs> Beautiful. Well plugged. That was very good. Led in very well then. <laughs> Mate, uh, also, how do you think the tour is going now? I mean, Jesse Millie Dyer, I, I grew, Doc grew up. I mean, I watched her grow up at Bronte. And funny enough that when she was coming through the surf club there, we actually paddled uh, a couple of seasons on the big stubble ski uh, before she uh, decided to brush me and go on to the uh, pro women's tour. <laughs> I don't know why she brushed me. Give away double ski paddling to uh, go on the pro tour. But anyway, she did that. Now she's basically in charge and, and running a lot of the tour. How, how do you think the tour is going these days? Because I think she is doing a pretty good job. Oh, I think I think the when I was on tour, I was actually a surfers rep as well um, for the ASP back in the before the WSL took it over. So the World Surf League is, is new compared to when I was on tour. And the ASP was kind of like a flawed system basically because – it was uh, the whole ASP was owned half, 50% by the surfers, 50% by the events. So, you know, I'd go to a board meeting and go, yeah, the surfers want um, more prize money. And then the events go, no, we're not going to raise the prize money, you know, half of the tour. So it was a flawed system. So the, the WSL is a, a breath of fresh air kind of thing, you know. You don't see the tennis events, you know, the, Nike's not sponsoring tennis events, they're sponsoring athletes to get the, the exposures they want. So surfing's a weird one because, you know, you have the, the industry sponsoring athletes and events. So it's a weird one and they own half the tour. So it was a really weird one, you know, myself personally as well, going into bat for the surfers, you know, and then I was sponsored by Quicksilver. And then, you know, the guy sitting on the other side of the desk is, you know, the guy working for Quicksilver going, you know, sponsoring me and telling me, you know, better keep your mouth shut, you know, just don't fight too hard for that extra prize money because, you know, it might come out of your, you know, my, sponsorship money but it was a weird system so I, I really think the WSL um, has taken to a whole nother level of professionalism of, of uh, trying to get outside sponsors into for professional surfing um, as you've seen like you know there's other sponsors now Jeep and you know car sponsors and stuff which, which is great to see outside sponsors making it bigger and better and you know the broadcast that they put together is incredible so I reckon, I reckon they're doing a great job too I'm with you uh, uh- and what, are, what do you reckon about the, the women's surfing? Now, you, you, I noticed you've coached uh, Steph Gilmore, but how much have they improved? The women are just unbelievable surfing now. Oh, it, they have indeed. Um, you know, it's always going to be a little bit hard to – I mean, they have a different scale in the, in the women's event as well and, and the body strength and stuff like that to surf places like uh, Chopu and Tahiti and, and Pipeline and stuff to paddle into like one of those waves is – it's really tough. Like in paddle power is what it comes down to, to get into the wave early enough to, to use your body weight to get through the wave. So 
but you know they've got a little bit of work to do for the aerials as well that compared to the guys but you know for the carving and and for the view the the nice flow that they've got like is is getting right up there with the men's and it's it's great to see and great to watch and it's good to see too the prize money now for them's come up equal with the men too so a, a lot's going on there with the surfing industry. Oh, it, was, it was great as a coach as well because you get a percentage of the prize money as a coach. So, like, when the women's went up to the same as men's, it was great for me when I was coaching staff. Well, mate, Jack, it's, it's great having you in for, with your story, mate. Uh, it's been great, fantastic to listen. And, uh, you know, I've watched you through your career and, and magnificent career and, and congratulate you on that. And, and what you're doing now with, uh, you know, the company with sunscreen and, and recycled bottles, it, it's uh, a great achievement, mate. Now, at the end of my interview, I do uh, five fun facts. I'm going to throw five questions at you. Answer them however you want. There's no wrong or right answer. The first one is your favourite takeaway food. Uh, sushi, easy one. I love raw fish and Japanese. I love going to Japan and the whole Japanese culture and the food's amazing. So Japanese takeaway. Favourite childhood memory? Probably up at Triggs Beach watching Tom Carroll and Oki come at an event called the Phyllis Shade Tracer and I went, holy moly, see these guys on TV, but they're all like short asses, if you notice. <laughs> you know, all those like those Tom Carroll and Potts and Oki, and they're all like next to nothing. They're all like midgets. So that was like watching those guys come to my hometown and like WA and watching those guys was one of my favourite mem- memories ever. Uh, cats or dogs and why? Uh, dogs, I'm allergic to cats, so that's an easy one. <laughs> Mate, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen. It's one of those ones, you know. <laughs> Mate, if you were a DJ, what would your DJ name be? Oh, Snake, you think? Snake Tales, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've worked on Jack the Snake forever, so why wouldn't it be? Yeah, it'd have to be that. Mate, great stuff. Uh, and actually, I've, I'm coming over to Perth this weekend because the, they've got me in a team doing the Rottnest Swim, you know, for Cottesloe Bloody Rotto. So I've done that I've before myself. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I've done it a few times. You've done mate. You're crazy. Oh, it's a, it's a big, big day, isn't it? It is. The beer <laughs> tastes good mate. The beer tastes good Oh, that's the, the only reason, mate, is, is to get that beer <laughs> at the end. And, <laughs> As long as those, one of those big 18-footers sharks don't come cruising through, I'll be fine. <laughs> oh, you you wait to see the crowds and that thing. The shark won't go anywhere near it. Stay in the pack. Stay in the park. How about Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay in the pack. All right, Jake, mate. Uh, great having a chat. We'll have to catch up one day and, uh, and, and have a beer. No worries. Thanks, Albert. Cheers, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got, he's been around for a little bit. He's only a young bloke, Chase Hardacre. How are you, mate? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, mate, you've been a lifeguard now um, for, what, four years, so you've got a little bit of experience and what it's like down at Bondi. But, you know, tell us, recently we had a, a pretty busy Christmas day down the beach this year, so tell us a bit about that. Yeah, look, I uh, like you said, I've only been here for four years, but... Uh... I've had plenty of stories and uh, experiences to tell. So coming up to your 30th recently, I can't imagine how much you got to share compared to my four. But yeah, look, that Chrissy day that we had, uh, we, we both worked together down there and, and that was something that 
we're both expecting to, to be a busy day. It was very busy. The, the sun was meant to come out. There was tourists around. Obviously, COVID's finished up. So with all that happening, we knew it was going to be a big day. And, and uh, from the get-go and straight from midday onwards, that's when we got busy and uh, had a big rescue. That was, I think, our, our first big mass rescue of the season for myself. And uh, right in the middle where the strongest rip of the day was, I think we had four or five at one point and I had to get you to come down and back me up. I was in the water solo trying to just do on a loop. It was like a carousel going in and around. And then you come down because obviously someone else was in need before I could get back to shore. And I turned over my shoulder thinking, oh, sweet, the day's done. It's all right. All the rips are sore. And I was like, something's going on out there. Hoppo's struggling out the back, holding on to his army. I go, oh, my God, here we go. I'm going to have to rescue Hoppo now. <laughs> Hoppo's, uh, Hoppo's done himself a mischief. That's, that's, that's what I knew. You got yourself in a bit of trouble there. Yeah, that's when I, uh, I tore my calf muscle trying to run across the uh, sandbank. That's what you get, mate, for 30 years. The old legs yeah, don't, yeah. Work, they don't work the same anymore. But <laughs> but what did you think then, though, when um, – so you were pretty much doing a lot of the rescues. How did you find, you know, prioritising and, and getting people back to the shore? Yeah, look, that rip, that, that was just coming around so quickly. So that was probably the most dangerous on the, on the beach, like I said, and – Prioritising the people that I had to paddle out to first of all was first of all like obviously distinguishing who who was most in need and the first guy I got was pretty much head underwater for several seconds and had to pull him up from under the surface, which is uh, always scary because you're hoping that they haven't taken in too much water and when they pop up and you look at them their eyes are still open so that was um that was that first that first rescue then was a no brainer but by the time I got him back to the bank and and look over my shoulder there was another two and. I think in that, that rescue as well, there was someone holding up the other person more. So I grabbed the person more in need again. I think that's when you come out the back and, and back me up. So that was um, a definitely a couple of split, split, uh, split second decisions there that, that uh, would have helped save those guys' life and picking who to go to and, and what's, uh, what's the dangers in that current situation. And do you find that that uh, helps with, ex- with your experience? You're only just starting. So looking back now on that day, yeah, would you do anything different or you find that that was the best scenario at the time? Yeah, look, I, I don't think I'd change anything that we did. We obviously, you and I got everyone back to shore and uh, everyone was still alive. So at the end of the day, if you can go home and no lives lost, and that's, uh, that's the beauty of the job and that's what you're meant for. So that's exact scenario that that situation happened and we came off better off and no one ended up injured or, or ended up dying, which was lucky. So how did it feel then? Because I was then out of play. My leg was uh, no good. I was back up in the tower with Laurie. So yeah. basically uh, the young bloke had to take control on the beach. So how did you find that where you had a yeah. bit more responsibility? Yeah, the, um, that, was, that was just getting to the midday of the day. Like, so we already had Hoppo go down. We had Laurie up in the tower. So our two most experienced guys instantly um, out of action for working along the sand and Having you guys put up in the tower and keeping an eye up there, we, we knew we had a couple of hawk sides to, to back us up on the beach, but obviously having to work solo and work one out, sitting down at South Bondi from then, running and managing that whole beach by myself, um, it was a lot more of a workload I had to take on and had to just get on the front foot and kind of lost it at some point. And that was like the point where I was like, oh, everyone just get out of the water. Like, you know, like you've been doing it for so long. you you got a temper for so long. And then once that clicks, it's just... As soon as someone's not listening to you, it's like talking on brick wall and trying to scream at everyone to come in and 
and yeah, try and manage that just as best as you can to take the pressure off you guys up in the tower. Yeah, it was like the old days. When I first started, it was you're basically on your own down there, so <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. a bit of a taste what it was like back in the nineties. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard those old stories before, <laughs> your old war stories running the beaches. So like, no, but I, I had a buggy, mind you, which was uh, pretty lucky because I can just zip up and down from rip to rip. But uh, back in the day, running up and down with the boys, I don't know if I'd be as fit as you guys back then. And then you, we sent down the uh, probably the oldest rookie we've ever had, Tommy. And everyone calls him my older brother. Uh, yeah, how was yeah. it? How was it? Uh, you know, working with Tommy. You, 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 you're already young, and then you've got Tommy that's. Uh, you know, in his fifties, but he's the rookie, and you're telling him uh, how to how to uh, deal with the day. Yeah, it's a funny one. He's um he's a bit of a character like yourself. He, he's good to take the mock out of. He gives it back as well. So you can always take the piss with uh with Tommy. He's a good bloke. Like he like you said, he's you grew up with him. He's one of your best friends. And having Tommy so called your older brother, which he doesn't like because he's obviously <laughs> younger than you. Um, yeah, it was good to work with him. So he, he uh, obviously has a lot of experience in the water. He's um, national champion at, at ski paddling and, and he's just built like a machine and, and a very fit guy for his age. Um, so, yeah, having someone with that much experience running around the beaches and, and uh, also keeping an eye on currents and, and rips and current situations was good. The funny one was as well, he's obviously he's never worked at Bondi before at his, um, at his age. So it's such a different scenario and, and anyone that just gets thrown into the deep end there just realizes so quickly how uh, how different it is to working anywhere else or even up up the up the Goldie like he has previously. And he was keeping himself on his toes and walking up and down the beach, doing some old school lifeguarding, paddling out in the board and just sitting on a rip and making sure no one come around him, just a big deterrent. So yeah, I picked up a few new skills from him and just getting in the water and doing it productively rather than running up and down the shoreline, trying to get two rips at once. So yeah, it was good working with Tommy, like I said. Um, picked up some stuff from him he would have picked up some stuff from me and I don't know if he would have liked the the young guy myself 21 years old saying oh Tommy can you do this and that just yeah it was it was a bit on but yeah he's a good bloke yeah no it was a great effort and um it's good you you take that experience away now next time uh something like that happens you'll be well prepared and, and ready to go yeah exactly right all right, Chase, it's great, mate, having you in the beach shack and uh, telling your story. I'll catch up with you at the beach soon. Hey, thanks for having me, Hop. See you soon. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Steve, and he asks, how has Bondi been considering there's been so many drownings all around Australia this summer? Well, Steve, uh, the crowds are starting to come back to Bondi from uh, after COVID. It's building back up again. And we have done a few rescues, but our rescues have been down a lot to what they were prior to COVID. And I think the reason being is we're down on the water's edge and educating people a lot more now. We're showing them what to do when they're in a rip uh, and then how to escape a rip. And... The messaging that we've been saying now from the megaphones to the people that are in the rips, we just say float, go with the flow of the water, and they're generally getting across relaxed and onto the sandbank, whereas people that try and swim and ignore our advice tend to swim straight back into the rip because they want to go back to where they came from. So I think that, along with uh, the lifeguards doing a magnificent job and also the patrolling strategies we have in place 
has been uh, minimising our rescues. So thanks, Steve, for your letter, and I'll catch everybody again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.